Welcome back to the Reset Rebel podcast with me, Joe Yule. And today I've been invited very um, luckily into the home of a man who's been here since the 1960s. A lawyer by training, Carlos Martorell, left his career to come here and create the first ever party in Ibiza. He'd visited the island at the age of 17 and after realising being a lawyer may not satisfy him in life, he quit his job to reside here and find an alternative calling and initially split his time between swinging London, the summer of love in San Francisco, the Parisian May 68, transcendental meditation in the Valley of the Saints in the foothills of the Himalayas, just to name a few little jaunts that he made um, in between. But all of this allowed him to rub shoulders with those in the right places, including members of Barcelona's Gauche Divine at the Boccaccio and his contacts, led to the organization at the opening parties of mythical Ibiza nightclubs, such as Pacha, Amnesia, Coup, El Divino and Knife. In 1996, he published his first novel, Requiem por Peter Pan, in Enthician's The Bronte, El Grupo Planeta, a novel that has also just been translated into English, and of which a legendary American TV producer, Robbie Amar, now apparently wants to make a series. So before I tell you anything more, um, let's introduce the man himself, Carlos. Welcome to today's episode of The Reset Rebel. Thank you. I'm very glad that you are here. Well, thank you so much for inviting me into your home. Well, what you said about uh, the wrecking for the, the name is Wrecking for Peter Pan in Ibiza, and the vice president of Gaumont TV came three times from Hollywood, completely in love with the novel, but then, uh, I, I, you know, I he disappeared after leaving uh, Gaumont, and uh, I don't know anything anymore about the TV series mm. because it would be great to have a TV series with that novel about the hippie times. I don't think there's ever been a really good TV series about Ibiza ever in the history of time. No, and that book is fantastic because it's, it's absolutely true stories and I changed the names and the nationalities, but the, the stories are quite incredible. I mean, you'd never written a book before you published that for the first time in 1996. No, no, that was the first one. The first and the second is called La Memoria Enjaulada. I don't know how do you say that in English, when it's um, your, mem- your memory in a cage about the Alzheimer. But let's talk first of all, I mean, you know, why did you name the book Requiem for, for Peter Pan? Well, uh, I named that that was the name of a first chapter, okay? Because uh, the island of Ibiza in the times of the hippies, it was called the island of Peter Pan because nobody wanted to be an adult, okay? And there was this this American woman in the time of of, of uh, may make love, not, make sex, of, not war, you know? And she was making a lot of sex with everybody. She got pregnant. And she was taking LSD and smoking joints and things like that. She was, you know, absolutely uh, convinced that she was having an abortion, you know. But in those times of Franco, impossible total. So at the end, we found a communist doctor in Palma de Mallorca who could do it. And she came back a little fat, more fat than ever. And I asked her, what happened? And she said, well, he told me I was four months pregnant, so he couldn't touch me. Because in those days, we didn't have a watch, we didn't have TV, no newspapers, nothing. We didn't know if it was Monday or Sunday, you know. (laughs) So she had to have the baby. But that baby, you know, he was on LSD and on everything. So it was born a little monster. Uh And he was supposed to be Peter if he was a boy, or um, Alice if it was a girl from Alice in Wonderland, those hippie things, you know. So I started with that, the, that chapter saying that, be careful. Hippie times are really fantastic, beautiful, sex and drugs and rock and roll, but where do we go with that? Mm-hmm. Huh? 
How, how was it to be on Ibiza back in the 60s? I mean, that's, that's a very open-ended question, but... No, that was fantastic, especially in, in, in the Spain in those days was, you know, very... There was, there was a lot of censorship and Ibiza was something incredible. What was happening in Ibiza was not happening in the whole uh, country, you know? The hippies changed completely the way of uh, the, the mentality, the way the, the, the way of dressing, uh, everything. Is that what made you go home and, uh, you know, quit your job and, and come back to be here full time? Well, um, when I came here, I thought Ibiza was going to be like that all the time for ages, you know, which was a big mistake, you know, because thanks to all these hippies, Ibiza became famous and then it's when they come to open discotheques and hotels and everything, you know. When Ibiza becomes like uh, a little bit like the rest of Spain and I'm doing all these openings and those promotions of hotels and restaurants, then they call me, you know, to work for Cartier, for Tiffany, for Loewe, for Vuitton, for Gucci, um, for, for Chanel, for watches Chanel. And uh, I had to be between Barcelona, Madrid and Ibiza. I mean, can you describe, you know, what it was really? I mean, there was like almost no roads here. There was definitely no airport. No, there was there was practically nothing. I mean, now you're in my house and you see all these buildings. There was nothing, nothing, absolutely nothing. It was fantastic. And the way the, the women were dressed, if you think, with those long skirts, it was incredible. But unfortunately, it was the poorest place in Spain because they they, they had nothing. Now they're selling turismo. Huh? It's an interesting thing to, to think about. I mean, you know, I've spoken before about the history of agriculture on the island and obviously things have, you know, changed enormously um, in the past with the way that food is obviously now imported and everything comes from supermarkets. But, you know, people kind of obviously always had enough food, even though there was a history of maybe not such abundant times that we're in now. I think people always you know, made their own food and were able to eat? Well, I mean, here, uh, everything was, was chicken, lambs, few cows, uh, and, and some vegetables, and that, that's it. Wow. Very interesting. And so what was it that, you know, maybe when you were 17 that you came here, you know, wh- how did you feel about the island when you very first saw it? Well, to, to see a virgin island, like if, we, if it was like 300 years ago. I mean, it was absolutely fantastic and different of, of every place because in those days, it was, it, it, we knew very well Mallorca. Uh, Menorca a little bit because they made shoes and they sell cheese, but, but Ibiza, nobody knew Ibiza. And when you arrive here, no, no boats, no planes, no nothing, no cars, it was fantastic. What really brought around this, you know, influx of uh, of tourism, as you say? I mean, why do you why do you think it developed so dramatically in such a short pe- period of time after you arrived? Because it was a, a place with total freedom and with very very good looking people, very young good looking people, and uh, we call the family a group of people who, in a way, escape over their families. And that was absolutely unique. And then um, they made this movie called More. Barbara Schroeder made this movie called More. It was not allowed in Spain because at the end, at the end of the movie, one died from heroin on the floor, and that was completely censored. But he filmed the most good, most beautiful places on the island. And that's what you think maybe attracted people to come and experience and explore for themselves. Yeah, and, and especially because all these hippie Americans, they were making a big publicity when they were going back to their countries and talking about this fantastic Ibiza. We didn't have mobile phones, but people had some cameras and making photos. They were printed in paper, on paper. In in the seventy in seventy three in the opening of Pasha on a wall, and they they were projecting uh, photos. I mean, 
talk to us a little bit more about this hippie time because I mean you know obviously that's what Ibiza is famous for that's why this all started in the first place but I don't think any of us really truly understand you know we were not here then so it's very interesting for us to hear more about you know were people barefoot you said there was no mobile phones how are you communicating to get together and organize these gatherings well normally around one o'clock we were gathering in the hotel montesol and we decided what what place to go what where we were going to have dinner because we were completely together in a group and in the houses at the door you had always um, a little block and 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 a pencil and then you you could write uh, come tomorrow to dinner that was our whatsapp and uh, it was fantastic the way people were dressed you know it was no ties no jackets like i was you know i was going to the university when i was studying law in those days you you know you had to have a tie and a jacket and it was like a uniform you know and then when i came here you know your your hair is longer maybe you have a beard you wear a pareo or a, a shirt kurta from india and women were not going to the hairdresser and uh, there were no makeup and they were beautiful you know very natural why do you think this island attracts the beautiful people even now well for because he became famous thanks to that and then after the hippies became famous the discotheques the the nightlife and always this kind of freedom that many people don't behave in their countries like they behave here yeah, that's very true. There's definitely parts of the island which you must see sometimes because if you look out the window from your balcony, you can pretty much almost see the red cherries of Pacha. Yeah. And um, it's, it's famous for freedom and sometimes they exaggerate. And the other day, Las Dalias, you know, it's the hippie market, one of the only hippie things that remain. There was a woman completely naked, covered with tattoos, buying things like you know totally normal like if he was dressed you know completely naked this doesn't happen normally uh, in barcelona or in madrid and that's a very interesting that you bring up there because for me yeah i mean i've never seen as many naked bodies as i've seen since i moved here sort of 10 years ago it's like insane how many yeah, there is a real thing for people to be walking around with no clothes on, but probably less now than, than when you were here back in the 60s. Well, it was in those days, uh, naked was on the beach, you know. But the, the, the police and Guardia Civil were coming sometimes to Salinas and to all these places like Caballet, because in, in, in Franco's time, it was, not, it was not legal, okay. So when I was on my horse, going to the beach and you know swimming with my horse on the beach naked there was a gogo girl called called jane she was a gogo girl of uh, of the um, discotheque lolas the first mm-hmm. before pasha she has now a boutique in of bikinis in formentera and she said carlos to to you know to ride your horse you know, i will do something like tarzan you know a triangle here in front and one behind <laughs> What was the tanga, you know? And then it became a la mode, and everybody, men and women, were wearing the tanga, so the police couldn't say we were practically naked, but the more more aesthetic, and the police couldn't say anything. And you know that now you go to the beach and you have all these all these guys from Africa selling pareos. And, and, and glasses and things like that and, and fake witons and all that. In those days, there were very good-looking girls selling tangas on the beach. It, it sounds terrible, Carlos. My heart, my heart bleeds for you. This sounds like a, a very difficult time to be alive. Well, <laughs> when I think, when, you know, sometimes they ask me to, 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 to talk about those days and... I, I feel like like it was a dream. Like I, I, it, it was not true, you know, because it's absolutely so different. 
But there was a real sense, as you say, about this um, this lady who very sadly um, wasn't able to get her abortion. But I think, you know, this time was very much about free love. There was a lot more freedom, this ability to be almost naked. And yeah, I think the community, the, con- the sense of connection that people felt compared to how things are now when everyone's on their social media, they're Instagramming in the nightclubs, in front of the DJ booth. You know, none of that was happening back then. So it must have been a very beautiful time to, to experience. Well, the most fantastic thing at night was we could dance, really dance, move, turn around, you know, having space eh, between people, between persons, and with beautiful disco, uh, funky, reggae music, not this volume that you call mad. Now, I don't know why they have to have this so high volume, you know. And now people, they, they don't care. They, they don't want to, to know somebody or they don't want to, uh, to find somebody to have sex. or so. No, they want to just get stoned and go boom, 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 like this, all pressed together, looking at the DJ, and that's it. It's completely different. That's why when I do my Flower Power VIP party, I get together all the people that normally they don't go to discotheques. They have, in my private place, they have room to dance. Practically, they know each other. And it's fantastic. It's like going back, you know, to the old times. Mm -hmm. This year is going to be the 20th VIP party, yeah. Who, who organized uh, Flower Power? Whose idea was that party? Well, the idea was many, many years ago, and the idea was of Piti Urgel, the, the, the brother of Ricardo Urgel, who was the owner, okay? But when in Amnesia, in everywhere, in Coup, the music was not techno, you know, the techno arrived in, in, in 1990, to have flower power music, hippie music, it was not a big change, you know. After 1990, when everything was techno, boom, chi, boom, chi, boom, chi, boom, like this, then to go back to the hippie music was fantastic because you, you could go to something different, you know. And then um, they asked me to, to start doing the, the, the VIP one inviting eh, to a private place in, in Pasha, Terrace, where they can dance when everybody else, free drinks, you know, and it's a very spectacular night. Mm-hmm. I've actually taken my mother there. The, only, the one and only time I went to that party, that was um, when I took my mom and she loved it. You know, it was all her kind of music, obviously, that she's a lot older than me. And um, she just, yeah, I think she found a little piece of herself that she never imagined could exist in a place like Ibiza from the stories that she'd heard. Yeah, people like very much this party. Now I have a problem because this year, after the pandemic, people are going crazy to go out. And I have maybe the double of people invited, it's going to be a little problem, you know, I have to be very careful. Which, is that still on Mondays? Because Pasha, uh, Flower Power used to be on Mondays. No, Flower Power was once a year. Then, once every three months. Then, once a month. And after 20 years of being published on magazines, um, papers and on TVs, it became famous. And now they do it every Monday. What do you think about the independent flower power parties that happen? Like there's one in San Antonio, I believe, in January. Well, they copy the idea. The other day I found on the floor a paper saying uh, uh, flower party in Nassau, in a beach club, you know. I mean, they cannot use flower power, but they can use flower. And there are many, many places that they copy the party, you know. That's a bit cheeky. Well, it's normal. When, when something has success, you know, they copy. But it's interesting that, you know, people are still kind of cashing in on this idea of, you know, the, the original Ibiza, you know, how it was when you arrived, which doesn't exist anymore. But there's a little t- 
tiny pockets and flavors and tastes that are available in certain environments like you said Las Dalias obviously the flower power party but there's you know talk to us about Lola's because I didn't even know that this club existed until I heard you speaking about it the other day but I was very surprised they still exist yeah and uh, well it's it's in in the, in the city in the center of the city behind the old market huh? there's a few a few bars El Dom and things like that and there is there is Lola's huh? and Lola's was like a little cave you know very small and there was a, a, a friend of mine from the, from the north of Spain and she opened this place and it was the only one so it was very successful you know and uh, everybody was a friend you know it was really nice yeah it's kind of interesting to I mean I've you know Obviously, there's a lot of clubs on this island, which I don't hear that many good things about. But, you know, sometimes there's some good things happening. But I was um, interested to hear that, you know, just this little tiny space existed still in Ibiza town, which is um, which is an amazing thing, as you say, because it's good to have places that aren't just always overly advertised. And I think you can go there and there is, you know, it's not always so busy. Well, the thing is that when Pasha opened... Huh? It was in the middle of nothing. And people say, well, we won't be successful because you have to take the car. Can you imagine? And it was a success. Huh? But it was like a, 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 not a very big, like Ibizenko house. Huh? It was like a country house and had a garden. And uh, the DJ was Cesar. And then PTJ was using, you know, being the DJ for only for half an hour. And you could go and say, oh, listen, um, you didn't play Tina Turner. You know, I mean, that was the difference of a DJ in those days and the DJ today, you know, because, I mean, they were, they were paying very little money. Now they have private planes, you know. When, when Ibiza started, Night Ibiza started to be famous because of Pasha and then Open Amnesia, Open Coup, which now is privileged, which was fantastic. And they start opening many, many, many discotheques. They were also building a lot of, of houses and, and around these discotheques, so they couldn't have gardens anymore. They had to be, you know, close, and they become macro discotheques. And then with thousands and thousands of people inside, which is a super business, but completely different. Mm-hmm. I mean... It's not a place where you make friends or something like that, you know. But it's a super business. It's very interesting what you just said there about the uh, the private jets and and obviously, you know, the the situation that this environment and this business and this industry has has created, and it's you know slowly causing quite a lot of damage to the island. And I remember you talking about a party that you threw um, to mourn the Mediterranean. Can you tell us about that? Well, when Coup opened, it was absolutely beautiful place with a big... It was not a swimming pool. It was like a lake, you know, really fantastic place. And the three owners, Vasque three owners, they said, listen, think of an idea to, to do a party, opening party. Well, like I do every day in my life, I go to swim. And in those days, can you imagine, with no boats, it was 1978 or 79, now I'm not sure. But there was no boats, like now, nothing. So, the, the, I mean, the sea was perfectly clean. Something very strange, I'm swimming and I get a plastic on my face. And then I said, oh my God, if Ibiza becomes super famous and they come a lot of millions of people and buildings and boats and all that, maybe we'll need to have a war against plastic and garbage. So I said, I'm going to do a party called Funeral for the Mediterranean. And then the dress code was mourning, or you could be like a, like a nun, like a priest. I was dressed like a cardinal. They were giving big, big, big um, candles at the entrance and uh, there was a dead mermaid uh, 
and two priests were, were taking around the mermaid dead, all painted in gold. It was really beautiful. And with the Requiem of Mozart, there was um, a procession around the lake that I filled with thousands of plastics. It was absolutely incredible. And everybody was perfectly in, in mourning, you know, with the candles. Fantastic. And I was a bit criticized by the government here in those days. Say, well, what do you say about the sea? The sea is fantastic. You're crazy. I said, no, no, no. I just say, be careful. And now people are fighting. If they started in 78 or 79, it would be great to start then the war to plastic, no? I mean, it's as if you had like a crystal ball. Yeah. <laughs> yes. And uh, I'm sorry for my English, eh? because I could explain in Spain things much better. Thank you for speaking in English. Yeah. Now everything is in English. Eh? Even I go to the other day to the, to the Cipriani, to the Italian restaurant, and I speak Italian like a Milanese. And I ask in Italian a waiter, Che uh, Giuseppe qua? is the owner here, Giuseppe. In English, please. I said, what? In English, please. <laughs> then I go to this new place, fantastic restaurant called Thuma, and I I, I wanted to ask for the for the manager, and uh, in front of the door there was a, a, a concierge, and I said, "Está el director?" In English, please. I said, "Listen, my God. I mean, if you don't speak English, you're nobody in Ibiza, mm -hmm. and Ibizenco, forget it." If we don't speak Spanish, can you imagine Ibizenko? It's a very strange thing, but I think if you look at, you know, what Ibiza does now is attract people from all over the world. You know, the same with this podcast, people from Italy, from Germany, from, you know, from Holland, from Belgium, you know, they're from all different countries. And there has to be, I suppose, a common language for us all to communicate. I'm not suggesting for one minute I would be as arrogant as to say it has to be English, but, you know, I guess it is a tragedy to be in an island that is Spanish and for people not to really um, be able to speak it, or particularly that are working in restaurants. You, you go to restaurants, and some restaurants, they, they give you the menu and the card and everything in English, and very small in Spanish. Normally it is the other way around. I think it depends where you go. I think around Ibiza, town, fine. But if you go to the restaurants further afield, I th I'm not sure it's the same. No, you are in the, in the, in, in the country, and, and then if you think of restaurants, it's different, completely different. But the super restaurants, the super a la mode restaurants, it's, everything is in English. You're a city boy, that's why. <laughs> yeah. Talk to us about um, Ricardo Aguil, because I did interview him. I didn't interview him. He was there when I was doing some interviews when the Ibiza Says No campaign kicked off. And I was doing some interviews for BBC Radio 1. And he was there that night. And I've got this amazing picture of us. But as you pointed out before, he doesn't speak English, which is, you know, totally fair play. Like, why should he? Um, but it's interesting, obviously, as the owner of Pasha, um, this wasn't the first place that he opened that nightclub, like you would imagine, because obviously this is the one that gets all the attention. Well, the, the first thing he opened was in, in outside Barcelona, which is called Sitges, because before 92, before the Olympics, uh, Barcelona had no beach. You know, there were super rocks to protect the city from, you know, to be invited in by by the sea, so we didn't have a, 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 a place to go to swim, and we didn't have all these ports. And Sitges was a place, you know, with a beach, and then you could go and swim there. And Ricardo opened there his first pasha. And after when when I, I took him here to know Ibiza in '69, then he he really was in love in with Ibiza and. And four years after, he opened Pasha. I mean, was it was it particularly difficult to get him to come over here and and to you know to show him the beauty and 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 where did the idea come from? No, 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 no. Because when in those days, when I was telling people, oh, I've been in an island, fantastic, incredible, so cheap, so beautiful, people were coming, you know. But I mean, not, not thousands of tourists, but friends that you tell them that. That happened to me when I heard of, of people 
that they had a problem with the wind and they end up in Ibiza instead of Mallorca with a boat. And then they found this fantastic island. And I heard that immediately I came, you know. Interesting. So t- tell us the story of how this, how Pacha Ibiza evolved. Well, first, the, f- the, the first time it was published on the press, Fiesta in Ibiza, Party in Ibiza, was 1969. There was, um, Pacha didn't exist. And there was, uh, the best discotheque in Spain was in Barcelona, because those, in those years, Barcelona was really much more important than Madrid. Now, unfortunately, is the opposite. And this discotheque called Boccaccio was really fantastic. It was very small, very luxury, you know, with, with, uh, it looked like a little bit like Maxim of Paris, you know. It's another concept of, of, of place, a small place, but really, really famous. And the owner, Oriol Regas, very generous, he told me, listen, Carlos, you told me about this fantastic island. Uh, let's rent a plane and we invite 125 clients, the most amusing clients, and they will be invited to everything for three days in the Hotel Montesol. We closed the Hotel Montesol. And uh, well, that was a really lousy hotel in those days. And uh, one day we go to Formentera and parties every night in Lola's. Ana Maria Ibarra was the owner of Lola's. She said, okay, perfect. And on the, on the flight, we had also some journalists. And it was the, f- the first time that Ibiza was on the, on the newspaper and saying Fiesta in Ibiza. And that was, you know, the first idea of having fiestas in Ibiza. And then uh, I show in the same in the same year I show to Ricardo the island, and then he he made a fantastic pasha. Very interesting to hear that story. I think yeah, a lot of people talk about the nineties, the British people bringing this scene over to Ibiza, and yeah, it's clearly not even true. I mean, that is I think the mindset of a lot of people that I speak to here about, you know, I've been trying to find out more about how this scene came to be. So it's very interesting to hear that you are you're the man. Well, I was not the man, but I mean, <laughs> uh, thank God uh, I came here in 64 with a bicycle and thank God I saw this fantastic paradise that I would love to be protected, you know, because sometimes you can die of success, yeah. Do you, do you think that's still possible? Because I, I don't see anybody dropping dead that's uh, earning sort of 10 million a night for uh, playing in uh, some of these super clubs. No, um, you know, sometimes uh, in a small island, you cannot have too much people, too much cars, too much boats, too much planes. It's better, you know, now even the government, they want to control the, the cars and they want to control a little bit because, you know, it sometimes it's too much. How does that make you feel? I mean, we're sitting here, we can gaze out the window to, and I can see Talamanca, which has had a lot of problems from toxic waste because of the amount of people that come and visit the island. You know, what are your feelings about the environmental degradation that's uh, happening here? Well, uh, every time they, every time I, I, they interview me, I don't want to be negative, you know, but we have to be very careful, very careful because too much people... Uh, then funeral for the Mediterranean, you know, a little bit. We have to be, the, still the, the, the sea is fantastic. My reason to be in Ibiza, it's the sea. The sea is, I even go to swim at night. That's fantastic because there's no music, no cars, no nobody, you know, and it's really, really fantastic. The water is great. I have to be careful uh, because of the medusa, I was going to say the medusa, jellyfish. the jellyfish. Huh? But I have, you know, a lamp, and I can I can see that. And for me, the sea is very important. Something that we have. They, there's something called um, Ibiza preservation. Right? They made me ambassador of Ibiza preservation, and it's a fight, you know, for protecting the sea. We've had um, Sandra Benbeniste on the podcast and, uh, and in Mersa and Nova. And I, you know, I think the work they do is incredible. And I think, 
yeah, I mean, we've definitely got a problem on our hands and it's interesting to see this storyline obviously evolving as time goes on with the sea is getting warmer, you know, the Medusa issue is increasing. There's a, you know, a lack of, um, I think, policing of uh, the boats. There's no sustainable fishing here. There's a lot of illegal boats coming in. There is a lot of issues that are uh, a result directly of, of the increase in tourism. So for sure, it's something, as you say, we need to keep an eye on. But I think, you know, it's already reached a point that, as we saw after two years of not having any tourists, for this to return is um, is kind of gone back to how it was before. Well, and I, let me tell you that during the, the pandemia, I escaped from Barcelona. Thank God with the last plane that was allowed to land in, in Ibiza those days. And I couldn't believe it. I was walking in the streets and there was nobody, nobody. And it was like in the hippie times. You know, no cars, no planes, no boats. And it was, in a way, it was sad, but in a way it was like being again in those days. What's the thing that you miss the most from those days? Well, first, that we could say that the the island was our island, you know, or the group called the family. I mean, friends is different now. Now it's very little friends and before we were a group of like a hundred to hundred people and we knew each other completely and we 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 were visiting the houses that they were open all day we could go to the beach and leave the doors open in the country or leaving the the keys in the car for five hours come back and you find perfectly your car with the key there it's, it was another world, and the prices, my God. Mm. What, you, what, what you eat <laughs> to people in a restaurant, you could have spend one month in Ibiza. Mm. It was a super cheap island. Mm. How times have changed. I mean, really, it's just insane. Well, the, that, that's uh, success. If you want success and you want, you want money, then you have a lot of changes. Mm. Because I'm happy for the Ibizencos, because when I came here, they were very poor. And now it's the fortunes arriving to Ibiza. And sometimes it's more than 100 private planes in one day. Something unbelievable. I mean, yeah, I don't think that's a good thing, but that's my, my humble opinion. And um, I just think it's it's unnecessary. I mean, unless... We were talking, my friend and I, about this exact situation, what it means to be, for example, we've just had um, Conor McGregor on the island staying in a yacht by Leo. And, you know, he's not the kind of guy, I think, that could maybe get on a normal plane. Because if he did, yeah, he would be swamped with fans and harassed the whole way here with people wanting photos and, you know, whatever goes along with being famous. But I think... It's a difficult story because if you just, you know, if you just have the money to take a private plane, I'm not sure if you should be taking that on those reasons because of climate change. I think obviously if you're a person that cannot have a moment's peace because of the fact that you are so famous, you cannot, you know, allow, you know, go anywhere without being recognized. I think that's slightly, slightly different. Well, now, you know, the problem for famous people is the mobile phone because everybody wants to, 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 to have a selfie. Well, Rafa Nadal, you know, he was sitting in Leo and it was impossible for him to, to, to touch his food because there was a queue of 200 people almost to, to, to take selfies. And then we, we went to Pasha and the same. And suddenly come a group of nine Indians eh, from Bombay and they were all fans of Rafa and they wanted to have selfies and selfies and then... Oh, no, and the flash is not working again and again. And then a certain moment I said, listen, stop. Huh? And I hear behind one of the Indians says to another, Rafa, very nice, but his father is a fucking bore. <laughs> How did that make you feel? <laughs> well, I wanted to dye my hair. Oh, well, you look unbelievable. I mean, how old are you? Are you allowed to tell us? Yes, I'm going to be 78 soon. Wow. Yeah. Well, you, you look amazing. 
Well, you know, I have a healthy life, you know. Thank God, I have a very strange body. When I was 13, the gardener of my parents came and said, now that your father doesn't see us, I give you a cigarette. And I was so happy to smoke a cigarette. Those days that Hollywood was promoting smoking all the time and all the movies. So I was really happy with my, with my brother, eldest brother, who smoked the cigarette. Now my brother smokes almost two packages a day and I almost vomit and I never smoke a cigarette again in my life. But I was pretending, you know, I was doing like this and yeah. no, no. and with joints, the same thing, because one joint, people were dancing and being very happy and I was completely paranoid. So I was, I was the same thing. I was going for that because if not, they say, oh, it's very boring. And I tried many drugs. No one was good for me. And I published it in a very important magazine. They, they, they interviewed me many years ago, and I said, I tried this, 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 this. I gave all the list, and I said, I go dancing with a glass of water. And then people didn't believe it, that I go, the only alcohol I drink is red or white wine when I'm in, in a restaurant. Mm -hmm. But champagne, vodka, whiskey, never. Mm -hmm. Because I, I feel bad. Mm -hmm. It's not that I want to protect, no, no, no. It, it, it's like this. It's a very strange body that rejects all that. I mean, you look amazing now, but you did send me a photo of you and Andy Warhol, and I was like, who is that? And then I realized, my God, it is actually you. And you look, yeah, <laughs> even more gorgeous. Well, you have to see, and then you have to see the pictures in my documentary, which is in, in YouTube. It's called Carlos Martorey Polifacetico. And then you'll see... Mm, a lot of things about Ibiza in those days. And then from dancing like a maniac every night, five hours in, in, in the discotheques, then you have a body, fantastic. And they, in those days, I didn't go to a gym. And it looks like that you, I was going to a gym it's from, from dancing. That's so interesting. We used to call it the gym of disco because we didn't need to go to the gym. The same thing, you know, you'd dance on a podium or in a club for 12 hours and then you just lose so much weight. You know, it doesn't matter what you eat or drink. It's just gone. Yeah. But now you do and maybe you have something here in Basta. <laughs> just flexing your biceps from the, from the telephone selfies. I mean, that's just a very interesting concept. But talk, talk, to, us about, um, talk to us about Andy. Warhol. Well, due to know all these American hippies, when they start going back to their to their countries, to to their country, sorry, um, I went to New York uh, to meet some of them, and but, but practically they were from from California, and uh, in in the street I met this this fantastic woman Elsa Peretti, Italian, who is the number one designer in the world, of Tiffany. She died almost a year ago, and um, she started working in Barcelona. She designed all the jewelry in silver, which changed completely the mentality in Tiffany, because Tiffany was emeralds, diamonds, and rubies, and all that. And suddenly, with the fantastic designs of Elsa Peretti in silver, a lot of people could afford, you know, to buy jewelry in Tiffany, you know. And now, you know, what she does is, is always a la mode huh? and is the, 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 the jewelry of Elsa Peretti is the most, the most important in Tiffany all over the world, you know. Mm -hmm. When I went to New York and I find Elsa, who was a friend of mine in Barcelona, mm -hmm. she introduced me to all this group. You know, she was always together with Holston in the TV series of Holston. You see Elsa Peretti all the time. And with all this group, with Grace Jones, uh, Diane von Fustenberg, uh, I don't know, Mick Jagger and Bianca. You know, all this group was fantastic. And then I started going a lot to, to the factory of Andy Warhol. I, I was a friend of Fred Hughes, his producer, and Bob Colacello, who is the only alive. Huh? And he was the manager of the interview magazine. Hmm? And it was fantastic to be in, in, the, in Warhol's factory because he was 
he liked to mix people that he found maybe painting on the floor in the street and then they became famous like uh, Basquiat some for instance or then you could have you know the uh, Faradiva the empress of Iran coming to have his picture her picture or all the time Mick Jagger and Bianca or Elizabeth Taylor Valentino it was fantastic the mixture of people from all the levels mm -hmm which was for me um, a lesson for public relations to mix different ages different economies and different famous not famous and um, warhol i mean i was very sorry for him because they shoot him and they almost kill him and then he changed completely you know tell us that story i didn't know about that i mean uh, the whole world knows uh, Uh, Warhol was a normal person, healthy, but suddenly there was this, this um, lesbian prostitute who lived in the street, who hated men. He wrote a scum uh, manifesto against that they should kill all the men, they should disappear, only women, I and mean, she was completely uh, crazy. And... Uh, she wanted um, that Warhol published her that that book. He didn't publish it. Well, he introduced her one day because she was coming to the factory. She introduced her to a guy who was working on TV. The guy was took her to a program, and uh, she said, "Well, they're going to say something about me. Fantastic, my book." And they just say, well, this is not the kind of person that we want for the, 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 the young gener generation of Americans. So one day she arrives in the factory and there was this big elevator that opens with no doors, you know, because it was a factory, you know. And in front they had, a, you know, the, a big table of reception and Warhol was there with the, with the persons and then he, sh he shot or Warhol, three times. You can you can see, I think it was Avedon who made the picture. There's a picture in the internet that, that Warhol does like this, and you see, you know, it's horrible, huh? Mm -hmm. He was like one, one year in, in a clinic, and then he became another person. He was like a walking, a walking dead, you know? You know, the way, the way he was, his voice, you know, and the way he was moving. And it was another person, but I mean, fantastic, fantastic brain, but his body was really traumatized. Huh? A woman ended up in jail called Valerie Solanas. I mean, of course, when you have a circle of trust like that, you know, and you're welcoming anybody through the door, I guess, you know, maybe not now because people are a lot more cautious for obvious reasons, but, you know, the security... Now, now they, they, they wouldn't do what they were doing in the 60s and 70s. You know, he would love to, to have anybody, you know, rich with poor and, and, and aristocrats with normal people. And, you know, an incredible mixture. And, and that was published in interview in his magazine. You had one interview of a very, very famous person and the next one. Once, I remember... There was um, the presentation of a book, huh? and uh, Jackie, Jackie Kennedy was not Onassis, was the widow of, ja of Kennedy. She was working for an editor. So Warhol would invite me to that presentation, and I say hello to Jackie Kennedy, and in this moment comes a man like this with arms like that and he says listen this is uh, the most intelligent how do you say culturista when they those that make so much um, exercise that they become like this bodybuilder yeah the most intelligent bodybuilder in this world Schwarzenegger <laughs> you know mm -hmm. and he ended up married to Juan Kennedy and becoming a politician. I mean, Warhol was always right. 
Very interesting. I was only watching a documentary about Conor McGregor last night and uh, yeah, Arnie pops up and he says his, you know, brilliant words that he'll be back to watch his fight. And, you know, Conor looked so, so happy that Arnold Schwarzenegger had come to visit him. And of course, yeah, you know, he's obviously a legend. But as you say, he's not he's not stupid. There's uh, he's not just about his physique. He's a very intelligent man. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I mean in, in those days, I mean, now uh, he changed because those days was really too much eh? muscles. Eh? And then you don't think of intelligence when you see a man like that, you know. But Warhol had an eye, you know, to, f- to see that certain people that were nothing, they would, be, they would become world famous. Which is a very unique skill. And I think a lot of people just don't, you know, they really don't have that skill at all. And interestingly, at the top of Delt Villa, on, as you go on to the right of it, underneath the tunnel, up above, there's a, a, moral, um, a mural from the Bloop Festival. And it says, and the rich and the poor, they dance together. I always notice that when I see it, because I think, is it really like that now? No, it's not really like now. I I design um, how do you say un chiste how do you say when when, when you you design something comic uh, uh, a comic a comic well, so I I published some comics in in the periódico Ibiza and I did one with like th- thousands of heads like this like this in the discotheque you know in front of the DJ. Eh? Like 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 no like ten thousand people like happens in in, in amnesia in Ushuaia, you know? and one in the middle says, "Excuse me, could you let me go out? I'm peeing on my pants." Because <laughs> what do you do when you are in the middle of ten thousand people? Well, it happened to me recently when I went to see Duran Duran, and in the middle of Ushuaia, when you've got the pool at one side and you've got a, like a, a you know like a boundary, like a gate. And yeah, exactly that. I mean, there's just no no way out of there. It was intense. That's why people don't drink. They drink in the in the in the VIPs, but when you are like this in the middle of thousand people, you pay the entrance, but then you cannot go to to the bar. Which is crazy because the drinks are at least twenty <laughs> twenty euros a throw in there, so they're missing a trick. No, well, you, you pay the entrance, and then the, the people in the VIP, champagnes and vodkas, and but when you are, you are, you, how do you go to the bar? You don't. Simple as that. And uh, I mean, normally we had little tables and space, but now there's no room. Now people want to be like this; they like it. I remember you talking about space, obviously no longer here, sadly after 20, 25 years. I mean, how did you feel about the demise or the, the, you know, the vanishing of space from our cultural landscape? Well, what I like of space is I, I was, it was an, an after hour also, you know. So they were closed and then they were open again. So I was going to swim on the beach. And then at like six o'clock in the afternoon, I was going to the after hour. And then you see people, they, 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 they haven't slept at all. And I was there just coming from the beach, you know, with my glass of water. And you could be dancing, you know. Then it, you, it was a part open air also. And it was great. I agree. And the fact that you could even leave, you know, if you had the right wristband, go for a swim, cool off and come back and have another, you know, four or five hours. But sometimes whew, you just needed to take a quick break. And, um, you know, they, 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 they stopped with the after hours because it was very unhealthy for many people, of course. Well, it was like the, 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 the party that never sleeps, a bit like New York, really. I, just, I think that was a good thing in some ways, that people always had somewhere to go and a good place to go. It wasn't just like a nasty little hole in, in the middle of an underground club. It was a beautiful place to be, and it was outdoors, so you felt like you were being almost healthy because you were still in the sunshine getting a tan. Yeah. And what now it's, it's in Ibiza has changed a lot is the fantastic new places, you know? For instance, yesterday I was in Jondal, you know, the restaurant. And listen, I told them when they, when they opened, I, I gave a couple of, of lunch, that, a promotion, you know. And 
I said, please, no DJ, no DJ on the beach. They have no DJ, they have no music at all. It's the most successful place in Ibiza. Expensive, but believe me, very good looking people. Um, the other day was uh, Robert De Niro, another day was Richard Gere, uh, Messi. Uh, I mean, it's the place really a la mode, eh? and no DJ. Because why do you need a DJ on the beach? Or sometimes in restaurants for dinner, and you can have a conversation with your friends. You know, I go to an Italian restaurant, DJ, and I said, listen, instead of kachikabum, kachikabum, kachikabum all the time like that, why don't you play some Italian good music and not very loud? There's a place on Formentera called Ten Punto Seven, and at sunset they play uh, Pavarotti. And I'm not joking. I'm sorry, I'm not that old, but I love it. And I'm like, that's what I want to hear when the sun goes down. For instance, you go to Las Dos Lunas, a very beautiful uh, restaurant on a garden, very, very beautiful and very good food. And they play, you know, some music, which is Italian music, or, you know, very nice music and, and not strong. The volume is not loud, you know. But, you know, gone are the days when you can go to the beach and have a snooze because you can't sleep because there's always music somewhere. And, you know, it's okay if you're in the mood and you're going there to listen to music. But if you're just going to the beach and there's a restaurant nearby and then suddenly or someone or someone brings their speaker to the beach and they never, ever play good music. Well, listen, <laughs> I you know that for for 19 years, I spent it October, November and December in New York. Huh? And it was fantastic, you know, the music in New York, not loud. And I remember Studio 54. I mean, Studio 54 was the best of the best. And the, the volume was, was, was not loud. I don't understand why people like that. Well, they told me that for the, for the new drugs, this boom, 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 you get more stoned. And, you know, when you see now a generation of, 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 of babies and, and very young boys, two, three years, that they scream like maniac, something like that. And the doctor told me that, that women uh, pregnant, that they need to be quiet because, you know, there's something alive here. If you go to like this every night, the fetus goes completely crazy, you know, and they come out hysterical and screaming, you know. So, believe me, if I was a politician and had some power, I would stop all this mm, high level of music. Eh? To, to be back like before, it was much better. I mean, I hate to sound like an old grandma, but I did go out maybe five years ago to Privilege and I went to see Carl Cox and as I walked in past the DJ box I felt like my ears were going to explode it hurt the pain was so bad and I had to go to the very very furthest point of the dance floor to be able to tolerate I mean the music was good but it was just so loud it was you know you would have exploded your eardrums if you stayed and there were people that was just so high and they were dancing right in front of the speakers and I was like you are never going to be able to hear ever again and this is a real issue I'm very passionate about it I have terrible tinnitus and you know I think if I'd stayed there any longer or stayed in nightclubs longer than I did already in my 20s and early 30s I think I'd be deaf well this will never change I think it's due to the drugs to the new drugs because with a joint uh, like in the hippie times, you, you, I mean, people got stoned, but they didn't need that to get stoned, you know. And you don't do anything. You're, you're a good boy. I'm a good boy. Yeah. Well, I think so, yes. <laughs> well, you look very good on it, I must say. I was like literally astounded at the picture that you sent me and um, you're still looking absolutely fabulous. So something is working for you. And um, I'm really, really grateful that you would invite me into your home and um, and have this conversation today. Is there anything else you wanted to to add about your books or? Well, I would like I would like you know. Well, the, I told you the book is in English, on, on sale in Amazon, but digital. 
And what I really would love is to find a producer, you know, for for a TV series with Wrecking for Peter Pan in Ibiza. The government here would help. And as I told that, that guy who was vice president of Comón, I said, well, I would, you know, help with the casting. I would help with the, with the clothes. I would help with the location. And it would be fantastic to have, you know, on a film, on a, on a TV series, you know, the stories that I, that I, that I tell in the, in the book, you know, because now we talk about, but it's very different to talk about and to see on a screen. Because Did now, you watch White Lines on Netflix? Ah, you know what, what happened in White Lines? Eh? There's a certain moment, they all, some um, people reach, people discotheques and hotels, they, they gather together, eh? and so, suddenly one says, uh, we can start now because uh, Mr. Martorey arrived. And they use my name. And then I called the, man, the, 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 the director, and he said, oh, well, we went into internet and the people more related to discotheques and on many discotheques was your name all the time. I said, thank God you didn't say Carlos Martorey because he was in the middle of all, the gangs, all these gangsters. And another thing incredible in that, in, in that, in that, in that series is that uh, they want to torch, torture a guy, a DJ. Mm. Eh? Tell me, who told me that I kill because it's a, the, the series is because they kill someone and they want to find out, no? Who, you know how they torture the guy? They have all these, how do you call Loudspeakers? Huh? Yeah. And they, they put him like Jesus Christ, like this, and then they put, you know, the, the techno music louder and louder and louder. Come on, tell, tell me who, who told me I killed the guy, oh, stronger, louder, louder, and feeling goes, almost dies. So it's fantastic that they use this music to torture. It's so true. It does feel like a human torture sometimes. And, you know, I just, I, I know I'm getting old. If it's too loud, you're too old. That's what they say. So I get it. But for me, it's not about that. It's about the protection of my eardrums. And for me, my job is revolving around being able to hear. So it's very concerning, I think, that a lot of people are out there not caring about, you know, how protecting their hearing. It's important. No, but you know what I tell to discotheques and restaurants? I say, listen, try to put down the music. Do you think people won't come? Just a little down. They, they will go to the discotheques and they will go to the restaurants, even to the restaurants even more. Because in the restaurants you want to have a conversation. Well, there's any, any restaurants listening out there that, that you need to turn the volume down. I think we're going to end there, Carlos. Thank you so much for making time to speak to us today. Thank you very much. Uh, and I, I, I hope that one day I can, I can listen to this. Uh-huh. In a month, it's coming out, in August. And um, also, thank you for speaking to me in English. I know that it's a challenge, but I, you know, I think your English is incredible. No, no, incredible, no. I could be incredible in Spanish, but the, the interview would be much different, you know. But anyway, thank you very much. Reserable. It's the reserable. It's the reserable.